Amen. Well, my name is Justin. I've been on staff here for the last nine years, this month actually. Um, and so like I've been from Fruitdale to RCC to Fruitdale to RCC to Grants Pass High School to Fruitdale to RCC to Fruitdale over and over again, kind of like the Israelites wandering in the desert. Kind of felt like that. We were just going and going and going. And I'm not calling this the promised land, but it feels pretty nice being here. You know, it feels pretty, especially like when you come into the kids wing and stuff is set up and you're like, this is cool. It's, it's pretty fun. So I've been here for a while and, and in the time that I've been here, I, I work in the office, which is just next door. Every day that we're open, there's people that come in. There's people that come in, they got, all of them got a story, some are seeking for help, some want hope, some people want a handout, some people just want to tell their story. And so when they come in, there's some things that we want to try to figure out real quick. So it's do you need help? Can I help you? If I can, what should I do? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, how do I get you to realize your need for Jesus? If you do know Jesus, how do I work out what's going on in your life and where mistakes were made and how can we work through these? How can we, what, what do we got to figure out here? So there's a lot to try to unpack when someone comes in. They're probably a stranger and they're sitting across from you You're going, how am I going to figure this out? And so in that, Mark Scudstad, one of the pastors here, he teaches the young guys, there's three questions he asks. And the first one is, who are you? Where have you been? And where are you headed? So those are the three questions he asks. And how you answer those questions will really reveal a lot about you, if you think about it. It will reveal how you look at obstacles, how you deal with suffering, how you view success, how you view failure. It'll really change a whole lot about you. And we know this. Like one of the things the Bible teaches over and over and over again is how you answer those questions, how you look at yourself. It'll tell you, this is who you were created to be. This is what sin has done to you. This is what Jesus has done for you. Here's who you are apart from Christ. Here's who you are in Christ. One of the things the Bible teaches over and over and over again is this is your identity now. This is who you are. And it, however you think that you answer those questions, it really does change the way you view everything in life. Like a way I see this played out every single day is in my four-year-old son, Elon. So he's four. He's a quiet little boy. And he's just quiet. He's reserved. He's calm. But then in an instant, he's Spider-Man. And all of a sudden, I got all down my hallway fighting bad guys. And sometimes he gets hit a little. Like he goes, oh, ow, ow. And not too many, though, because he's Spider-Man. He always comes out on top. I've yet to see him get defeated, right? So this is happening, and then the strangest thing will happen. Out of the middle of nowhere, Spider-Man will undergo a transformation, and he'll have his web sling in hand, which will turn into this kind of three-pronged thing, and he becomes a dinosaur. And now I've got this dinosaur running around my house, just loud and terrorist, and he's running into things. Like, Elon, what are you doing? And he it doesn't give me an answer. He just ah, because he's a dinosaur now. When he's Spider-Man, he does the thing Spider-Man says. He says the thing Spider-Man says. He acts like Spider-Man. When he's a dinosaur, he's sitting at the kitchen table with his little Tyrannosaurus Rex hands, eating from his plate with his face. <laughs> and he's my oldest son. And really, this is more of a cry for help than anything. I don't know how to handle it. Like, I don't know how to get him to stop. But when he thinks he's a dinosaur... He says the things dinosaurs say. He acts the way dinosaurs act. He does the things that dinosaurs do. In that same way, however you and I view, this is who I am, this is where I've been, this is where I've headed, it changes your outlook. It changes everything about you. And 
You know, if you're going through like depression or anxiety or there's stuff going on in your life and a, and a lot of it is maybe surface level, there's stuff that you can change that helps totally. Like maybe you just need a change in diet or a change in routine or a change in outlook. You just gotta be more positive and that can help. But there's deeper stuff that can be in us too. And that deeper stuff, you might go, well, man, there's nothing that can change that actually. Like there's a guy in the story we're gonna read today where if you asked him, hey, who are you? Where you been? Where you headed? He would tell you, well, I'm broken, I've always been broken, and I'll always be broken. And he would be totally right in saying that. Because based on how the world works, his understanding of the world, yeah, that's who he is. He's broken, always been broken, always will be broken. And a change in habit, routine, diet, outlook, nothing is gonna change that. But here's what happens. Jesus gets involved. Jesus does something only Jesus can do and radically transforms him and his life and how he will always answer those three questions and it's available to you and me as well. So let's look at it. It's John chapter nine. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have your phone, you can just get it. John chapter nine. Just the first seven verses. Now as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. We must perform the deeds of the one who sent me as long as it is daytime. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with his saliva. He smeared the mud on the blind man's eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sun. So the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus is traveling with his disciples. These disciples know Jesus. They've spent a lot of time with Jesus. They've talked with Jesus. They've spent a lot of time with God. And they see this man who's suffering and they've got a question about suffering because no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus and know Jesus, when there's suffering in your life or you're standing in front of someone or, or there's suffering that's now in front of you, it's very natural to go to Jesus and go, God, what's going on here? So the disciples, they've got a question about sin and suffering. So let's just look at verses one and two one more time. Now, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? So consider just for a moment this guy's life, right? He's born blind. He's never seen a sunrise. He's never seen his mom's face. He's unable to take care of himself. He'd be unable to provide. He'd be limited to being a beggar. Because 2,000 years ago, there was no social structure or system in place to where a man like him could be taken care of. There's none of that. He's left to his own devices. He's on his own. He couldn't get married. He couldn't get a job. He'd be ostracized from certain social groups and from friends. All he could ever be was a blind man. He would be unable to go to school. He's uneducated. This is just who he is. There's nothing that he can do, nothing that he can say, nothing no one else can do that could ever change that. A change in his habit, a change in his diet, him choosing to be more positive isn't going to change any of those things. Just imagine how limiting this is for this person. This is all he's known. This is all he'll ever be. He's just a blind guy. And so today, 
He's sitting at this temple and he hears the disciples come by. And the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus ask this incredibly hurtful, callous question. Hey, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? Was he born deaf or blind? He was born blind. This man is sitting outside the temple where he knows God's people come. And he's just hoping that someone's going to be generous or kind or have compassion or empathy on him. Maybe they'll give him a little food. Maybe they'll give him a little money. Maybe they'll just look at him and take pity on him and help him out a little bit. And he hears this big croup coming by. And what he hears from him, because as you know, if you lose one sense, your other senses get stronger. Here's this group come by and they go, hey. And he's going, oh, good, baby, they'll help me. Whose fault is it that his life is awful? Is it his fault or his parents? Cool. Okay. It's going to be that kind of day. You know, this is a really bummer, callous, insensitive way for the disciples to look at this man's life who's been super disadvantaged and full of suffering. What the disciples are revealing is somewhere deep in them, somewhere deep in their heart has settled this idea of really good things happen to good people and really bad things happen to bad people. And so if it's, this, if it's not this guy's fault that he's disabled, if it's not this guy's fault that he's blind, it's probably his parents' fault. Like if there's stuff that's wrong going on with him, it's, well, somewhere, somehow he's earned it, he's deserved it. And this blind man has grown up in this system where he would probably believe it too. That either he had done something wrong in the womb somehow to be, caused, to be punished, to be born blind, or he would know every single day of his life just by existing, he's a constant reminder to his parents that they failed somewhere, that they messed up. Just him being alive would be a drag on his parents, a reminder to them, God is mad at us for something. That's the system he's growing up in. And today, that line of thinking really is still in us, that if I do good, that if I have good things, it's because I've done good things. Or if I, there's bad things going on in someone's life, it's probably because they've, they've done bad things. We call it karma. You know, and it, it might not be on the forefront of your mind. It could be subconscious in the songs that we sing, and we could cover it with Bible terms, like you reap what you sow, and God is the judge. But really, it's the same idea of good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Like there's this really old movie that most of you probably won't remember. Probably only Matt Heverly would know it. <laughs> called The Sound of Music. And in it, The Sound of Music, there's this song called Something Good. And here's the lyrics. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What's the person saying? Hey, I know I've messed up in the past. I'm looking over my history and I've, I've made mistakes. I've made failures, sure. But the fact that this person's in a relationship with me, the fact that things are going right right now tells me somewhere I've done something right. I've done something to earn what's happening to me right now. The only reason this good relationship I'm in is going on is because I've done something, said something, put something in motion to where God or the universe has been bent towards me and is shining favor upon me. And if you're someone who believes that, if you're someone who believes that and, and you come across someone who's suffering, someone who's in a bad spot, it's only logical that you would respond like the disciples, that you would be free of compassion and free of empathy. Because you know, well, bad things happen to bad people. They're just paying their cosmic debt. 
Middle Eastern religions who believe in karma, who really follow karma, they look at it kind of like this. They take it to an extreme of if you've done three sins, three failures, three mistakes, you're owed three sufferings. And if someone's going to be generous or compassionate or loving or caring or try to help you out of it, all they're doing is prolonging the paying back of your debt. So it's better to not get involved. It's better to not help. It's better to not show compassion on people who are suffering because really the universe is just trying to equalize. And what's crazy is a lot of people, even Christians, believe this. And when Christians believe this, it causes them to be like the disciples who are callous towards this begging blind man. But it shows up in Christians kind of as a self-righteousness. It shows up in Christians as this kind of self-righteous, holier-than-thouness. And really, if that's in you, if that idea, like it did for the disciples, of this karma idea settles in you, I think it'll show up in two symptoms. And one is you'll find yourself being really judgmental. And the other is that you'll find yourself being angry a lot. So the first one, you'll find yourself being really judgmental. The judgmental, self-righteous, holier-than-thouness, it really comes from the lack of ability to see the weight of sin in our own lives. So I paid an illustrator to really write this idea out. It, it cost a lot of money. Just kidding. His name is Dick Worthington. He's a pastor here, and he uses this in marriage counseling. But here's the picture he came up with to give this idea. <laughs> You could tell gender roles in it. Like, you, you really get a lot out of this. And the idea is this, is we all have a whiteboard on us. And on our whiteboard, we all got a spot. See how his spot's in a different spot than her spot? And we live our lives with our own spot, our own brokenness, our own sin, and we figure out how to manage it and go through life with it. And our spot's okay, but we see someone else with a different spot, especially as you get to know them more. Like, you spend your life with them, or you work with them, or you're with them every day somehow. And then you start to realize, hey, their spot's in a bad spot. Their sin's worse than my sin. They need to get that figured out. They need to get that handled. You need counseling. Like, you start to do that without, while ignoring the sin in your own spot. We're supposed to be figuring on every, focusing on everyone's heart in the middle, but instead all we can look at is the sin that everyone else has got in their life. And we go, well, their sin's worse than my sin. Doesn't that happen all the time where we look at other people and we say, well, I've never been broken. I've never been addicted. I've never had a fair. So therefore, I'm pretty good. God's pretty lucky to have me on my team. You're lucky to have me on his team. Like Matt shared last week with that woman who was in court and the court documents had that she was an intravenous drug user. And she goes, hold on. I've never taken meth through the veins. I only smoke my meth. And anyone standing back would say, well, honey, I don't think it's how you're taking the meth. I think it's the meth. You know, in that same way, we look at other people's sin and we say, oh, I've never done that. And, we, and Jesus would go, no, I don't think it's the way that sin is playing in your life. I think it's the sin that's the issue. You know, and even the best Christians do this. Even the best Christians do this, have this sin in them that's 100% separating them from God, but we don't see it. So like there's this guy in the Bible, his name is Nicodemus. John chapter three, Nicodemus is this man who everyone in the community knows him. And everyone in the community would want their kids to end up like him. He knows that his parents are proud of him. He knows that he does everything right. He tithes, he's, he works at the food pantry. He prays for everyone to hear. He leads the church services. He's a rad guy. People like him. People want to be like him. And he believes in this idea of, well, karma, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And in his system, what he believes is every act of sincerity, every time that he prays, every time he meditates, every time he gives generously, every time he forgives, he's putting down little planks that will build a bridge from him to God. 
At the end of his life, if he's done enough good things, he'll be able to get to God. But every time someone lies, steals, cheats, every time someone's dishonest, every time someone does something they know they should not do, it takes a plank back. And so you just better hope that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. So he believes this. And he's sitting in front of Jesus and he asks Jesus, hey, what would I have to do to get eternal life? Thinking that Jesus will look at him and say, Nick, buddy, Everyone here, take a look at my man Nicodemus. Look how humble he is. He's wondering what else he's got to do. He's done it. Man, he's made it. If everyone could just be like Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the reason you're in Jerusalem is you're the example. I came to point everyone to you to say, be more like Nicodemus. Oh, Jesus, you know, I do what I can. Like, that's how he thinks the conversation is going to go down. He says, Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus looks at him. He says, you? Oh, for you to get eternal life, you got to be born again. That's where we get the term born again. You'd have to start over. You've got too much going on in you that separates you from God. There's no way that you'd be able to get to heaven. Your good deeds have not outweighed your bad deeds. There's no way for you. You'd have to start over. Just because you haven't murdered, just because you haven't committed adultery, just because you haven't kidnapped someone, doesn't make you better than anyone else. This self-righteous judgment, it comes from this idea that we, we weigh ourselves based on other people. We look at other people's sin and we go, well, I'm doing better than them, so I must be pretty good. I've never done what that person did. I've never had to go to court and defend myself in that way. I've never had to go through this stuff. I've never done these things, so I must be doing all right. God never weighs you in relation to other people. God weighs you in relation to himself. You'll say, how do you compare up to a just, right, holy God? And the Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one, that we all fail that test. The only way that at the end of your life you get eternal life is if you're covered in Jesus' blood where God will look at you and he'll see his own son. But this judgmentalism, this self-righteousness, it comes from we look at other people, we look at the sin in their lives, and we don't see the weight of our own sin and how it's affecting us. That's the first thing. The judgmentalism. The second is anger. It'll show up in two ways. That, that karma idea, if it's in you, will show up as judgmental. We don't know how sin, the weight of it in our own lives. And second, anger. We don't see how grace plays a role in our lives. If that karma idea has seeped into your heart, you look at God and your relationship with him as if he's your boss. God, I've been working for you. I've been putting my time in. I've been doing everything right. And you didn't get me that job I'm supposed to get. You didn't fix my marriage. You didn't fix my kids. And now my neighbor who does everything wrong, everything right seems to be going for him. He got a new bow. He got a new timeshare. He got a new Airbnb. What's going on? God, I've been putting my time in. It's the prodigal son's older brother where he looks over at this, the son who's been living his life wrong and doing everything incorrectly. And he goes, hey, you owe me. Don't forget about me. I've been putting in my time card. There's vacation days I've owed. I'm entitled to sick days. There's some back pay that has to happen here, God. And this happens to believers all the time. It's a constant warning throughout the Bible. Like you have this story in 1 Samuel. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible where earlier God gives the Israelites this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And in it is really good stuff. It's the manna that God fed the Israelites with every single day in the wilderness. It's Aaron's staff that budded. It's the tablets that have the law on it. All this is in the Ark of the Covenant. And God gave that to his people so that they would bring it into war with them whenever they go to battle. And God's people were supposed to look at it and they were supposed to answer three questions. They were supposed to say, who am I? And they'd look at the Ark of the Covenant and they'd say, I'm God's chosen people. 
And then they would look at the Ark of the Covenant and they would ask themselves, where have I been? While I was in Egypt, I was enslaved to this master who wanted to kill me, who wanted to destroy, who wanted to take away from me. But because God's grace and God's mercy, he redeemed me. He pulled me out of there. He's made a way for me. And where am I headed? I'm headed to the promised land. I'm headed to victory. They're supposed to look at that Ark of the Covenant, be able to answer those three questions. When I worked in San Diego, there was a pastor on staff. His name was Adam. And Adam was a, he's a military sniper. And he served many tours in Afghanistan. And he was a pastor now. And he told me on a few different missions, he got to work side by side with the Israelites. And he said the Israelite army, the soldiers, were the most ferocious and unparalleled and courage group of people he's ever seen. Like they would run straight into gunfire. And he's been in a number of firefights and he, he was never able to understand it. So he's sitting across from one of the Israelite buddies that he has. And he just asked him, he goes, how do you do that? How, do you, how are you so ferocious and so courageous in battle? How do, you, how do you do that? I've been in a lot of fights, but you're like unwavering. And he looked at my friend Adam, almost like he was confused by the question. And he shrugged and he goes, we're God's chosen people. Dude, if you believe that, that's an enemy you don't want to fight. Right? That makes you just completely ferocious, full of courage. That's someone that you don't want to stand against. You've got nothing to fear. The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to do that for God's people. That they were supposed to look at the Ark of the Covenant and go, God's got me. God had me in the past. God's going to have me in the future. I'm in. Let's go. They could be ferocious, full of courage. But what happened is in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they get the Ark of the Covenant. And what they say is, that's going to save us. They look at the good things God gave them and said, that will save me. We do that all the time with our jobs, with our relationship, with our friends, with our possessions. We say, this thing's gonna save me. Not look at it and go, God has been so good to me. I bet you God's gonna provide in the future. And even if that all gets taken away, God is still good. Well, what happens to the Israelites is the Ark of the Covenant gets taken from them. And what they do is they say, God abandoned us. God, you didn't show up. We played our cards right. We did everything we were supposed to do. God, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And they're angry. And because their anger comes from the inability of, to see how grace has played a role in their life, that God gave that to them to remind them, God's been so good to me. God's been so faithful to me. I bet you he's gonna keep being faithful to me in the future. The things that God has given you and I, if we're in a good season, we're supposed to look at them and not go, oh man, I've earned that. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I'm self-made. We're supposed to look at it and go, wow, God has been so good to me. I bet you he's gonna keep being good. But if you're someone that has good things and think it's only because of the good things you've done. Well, when you see someone who you know is not doing good things and you see them succeed and you see them doing well and have the things you wish you had, the only logical response is to feel angry. It happens to Christians all the time, but Jesus never came to preach karma. Jesus never taught karma. Jesus never talked about karma. Jesus came teaching kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom mentality is not, I have good things, I must have done something good. The kingdom mentality is, God has been so good to me despite the life that I have lived. It's not, hey, I need to build a bridge to get to God. If I can do enough good things, I'll be able to get there. It's God has been so good to me. He made a way to come and redeem me and to come and get me, regardless of the life that I lived. In fact, despite the life that I've lived. And if you have that, you're able to remember that we are all Beggars, like this blind man, asking for forgiveness from a perfect, holy God, that there's no one in a better position. There's no one who would say, oh man, I've earned it, I've made it. 
And if you remember that, you're able to know that we're all broken and there's only one enemy. And the enemy's not your spouse. The enemy's not your kids or your coworkers or your boss or your landlord. The enemy's not your governor or your mandates or your president. The enemy is the one that Jesus is gonna take care of at the end of time. And it's his job to judge and his job to worry about that. The only job left for you and me to have is to love people the way that Jesus has called us to love people. And so verse three is what Jesus says to his disciples when they ask him this question, hey, whose fault is it? Here's what he says. Verse three, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. We must perform the deeds of the one who sent me as long as it is daytime. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So a question we all have when there's suffering going on in our life is we go, why? Jesus, why is this happening? And Jesus says to his disciples, this was not a sin issue, this is a suffering issue. But I think there's four reasons that we see suffering that happens in our lives. Number one is this, and this one I think is obvious. Sometimes we suffer because of our sin. We drink, we drive, we wrap our car around a tree and there's suffering. And that's my fault and that makes sense. Okay, I get that. Sometimes it's a loss of temper. Sometimes it's making bad decisions over and over again and, and it leads to suffering. But it's really hard to imagine what this blind man could have done before he was even born to make God punish him the rest of his life for being blind. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. So sometimes we are suffer because of our own sin. Sometimes we suffer due to other people's sin. It could be generational. Like it could be your parents saw their parents raise their kids a certain way, so that's the only way they know how to raise their kids. Their parents saw their parents treat their spouse a certain way, and that's the only way they know how to treat their spouse. Saw their parents deal with issues and self-medicate, and so that's the only way they know how to handle with stuff. And so that got passed down to you, bad photocopy, bad photocopy of a bad photocopy. And you just go, man, I just can't get out of this. This is the only way I know this is who I am. Sometimes suffering comes from that, this generational sin. Sometimes it's intentional from other people that the disciples, they don't even consider maybe this man's a victim and he needs compassion and, and someone to love him and someone to care for him. Sometimes suffering happens in our lives because of other people's evil and ignorant choices. That sometimes things get stolen, that sometimes we're abused, that there's lies, that there's betrayal. And the disciples don't consider that at all. That maybe this man's dad was a drunk and pushed his mom down the stairs and that's why the baby was born blind. But Jesus says, no, it's not a suffering issue. Or it's not a sin issue. It's not that this man sinned or someone else sinned. There's a third reason I think that suffering shows up in our lives. So sometimes it's because we sin. Sometimes because other people sin. Sometimes it's due to demonic influence. That the Bible talks about this guy named Job. Good, godly man. God looks at him and says, hey, look at this guy. He's pretty great. And Satan comes and takes away his kids, kills his kids, destroys the family farm, all the servants leave. He's covered in boils, he's covered in sores. And it didn't happen because he did anything wrong, but because he was good. That sometimes we are in a battle with an enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy and the suffering that's going on in your life, it might be demonic. That Jesus suffered not because he did anything wrong, Jesus suffered because he was God. So sometimes because of our own sin, sometimes because of other people's sin, sometimes it's demonic influence. Jesus says, it's not because of sin. He doesn't mention the demonic. 
So the fourth reason is sometimes we suffer because we live in a broken and fallen world and nothing is working the way that it should. That when God created the world, he said it is good. God is the living God. Everything that God creates is good and it is living and then sin entered the world and now everything is infected and is corrupted by sin and nothing works the way that it was intended to work. And Jesus says, this is the case. That the reason this man is blind, the reason this man is ostracized, the reason this man is left out is not because of someone else's sin, not because of some demonic influence, but because the world is broken. It's not supposed to be the way that it's supposed to be. And to be clear, the Bible does talk about sin. Jesus does talk about sin, and it would be a sin for me to not tell you about the sin that's in you, and there's a savior for that sin, and his name is Jesus. And he wants to redeem, and he wants to save you, and he wants to heal you. But this man's in this situation not because of sin, but because the world is broken and he's suffering. And some people are just broken and need compassion and they need encouragement and they need people who are around Jesus to wrap their arms around them and help them. And what Jesus says in verses four and five is they need to be able to see the difference, have compassion and lift people up that there's something mysterious going on for this man that not even he understands. That sometimes there's mysteriousness in suffering. That Lamentations 3.33 tells us that God doesn't want his people to suffer. It wasn't his intended design for them. But there is suffering in this world, and we all know that. And so it's in that suffering, God can use it, and God can work through it to reveal the acts of God through you and through me, just like he does with this blind man. For instance, you see it in the life of a guy named Joseph, who's in Genesis, where Joseph does everything right, does everything his dad wants him to do, so his dad entrusts him essentially with the whole family farm. There's some pride issues in him, passed down from his dad. But then his brothers get envious, they get jealous, so they sell him as a slave. While he's working as a slave, he does everything faithfully as unto the Lord. He works really hard. And Potiphar's wife, his boss's wife, takes notice of him and wants to sleep with him. He says, no, I can't sin against God or my master in that way. So she accuses him of rape. So he gets sent to prison. While he's in prison, he he does everything faithfully as unto the Lord and the officers put him in charge of all the other prisoners. The man just keeps doing the good, godly, right stuff and he keeps suffering because of others' ignorant, evil, stupid choices. And the entire time that it's happening, years and years and years and years and years, you can just imagine this poor young guy going, God, what is going on here? God, do you not see what's happening? Do you not care? Are you not able to save me? Are you not able to help me? What is going on? I keep doing everything I'm supposed to do and my life keeps getting worse and worse and worse. God, what's going on here? Sometimes when we're in the middle of our suffering, we don't see what God is doing and you can only see it when you're at the end of your suffering. That at the end of the story, you see God was putting little building blocks in Joseph's life to elevate him to be in the spot he needed to be so that God could save many lives. Sometimes in the middle of our suffering, it's hard to see how God is working all things together for good. There's this man named Dallas Willard, and he says this, this is the kind of world that is necessary to produce the kind of people that God wants to spend eternity with. This is the kind of world that is necessary to produce the kind of people that God wants to spend eternity with. With all of its hills, with all of its valleys, with all of its joys, with all of its pains, with all of its celebrations, with all of its heartbreaks, that it can develop in you the kind of people God wants to spend eternity with. And I think you and I know that. Like there are things that we go through that you would never choose to go through again. 
But having experienced it, having been in that doctor's waiting room, having gone through that tragedy, it developed something in you. It made you into something that you would never trade for anything else in the world. And for the believer who knows this, Romans 5 verses 3 through 5 says this. For the person who's a believer and in suffering, not only that, but we rejoice. The believer is supposed to rejoice in their sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the believer is supposed to look at their circumstances in the midst of their suffering and go, suffering produces endurance. What endurance is, is it's your ability to take more before you get tired out. I don't get worn out as easy. I don't get beat up as easy. I'm able to get through stuff easier because I've been through hard stuff. That's where I've been. I can look in my past. I can see, okay, God pulled me out of that. I know that there's rest and there's hope coming in the future. I can endure this. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character is the inward traits such as honesty and responsibility and courage. I know for today, I can get through the circumstances that I'm in. I don't have to lie. I don't have to steal. I don't have to cheat to get ahead. I can trust that God's gonna come through for me just like he did yesterday. That today, I can trust in him. That my God is gonna be able to come through. I can be someone full of integrity because I know God's gonna provide. And then character leads to hope that I know Jesus can do exceedingly abundantly above anything I could ever ask or think. And in the face of real difficulty, my God can give me extraordinary hope. That I can look at the suffering that I've had has given me endurance, that's the past. I can look at my past, I can see where I've been, I can see how God has redeemed and come through. I can look at today and say, I can be someone of integrity, of courage, of resolve, because I know that my Lord's gonna provide. And then in the future, I know where I'm headed. It gives me hope. I'm looking forward to better things. Jesus is gonna do exceedingly abundantly above anything I could ever ask or think, how can I not trust him? This is who I am. This is where I've been. And this is where I've headed. This is how you see this lived out in Jesus. So in John chapter 13, verse three, there's this verse that says essentially this about Jesus. That Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he's been. He knows where he's headed. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is who he is. He knows it. And going, and that he had come from God. That's who he's been. And was going back to God. That's where he's headed. This is the eve. John 13 is the eve of him being betrayed, of him being mocked, paraded around town under crimes he didn't commit, where he will be crucified and where he will be murdered. This is the eve of all of that suffering. Jesus is God. He knows that it's coming. And in that, he knows these three things. This is who I am. This is where I've been. This is where I've headed. And it allows him to, in the midst of all of that, the weight of all that coming, to wash his disciples' feet, even the one who's going to betray him. It allows him to serve the people that God's called around him, even though he knows things are going to get really, really bad for me. Where, who I am, where I've been, where I've headed, I can do what God has called me to do regardless of the outcome or the circumstances because I know who my God is and I know who I am in him. The Bible tells us that if you call Jesus Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that something amazing happens in you, that you get a status change, that you're no longer the person you used to be, but that you're a new creation in Jesus. And so this blind man he was born blind. 
All he's ever been is blind. All he will ever be is blind. Jesus gets involved, and in a situation that no one could change, no one could fix, Jesus gets involved, and he's no longer a broken blind man. He's now someone who can see, who can participate in community, who can get married, who can get educated, who can change his life, who can help people, who can now be someone who encourages, and everything changes for him. And for you and me, we are all broken sinners living in a broken and falling world. And there's nothing you or I can do or say that will ever change that. There's no good intention, no good work, no good deed. But Jesus comes, he heals the blind man. Jesus can come and he can heal you and me and everything changes. And once you're in the daylight, like Jesus says in this verse in John chapter nine, once you're in the daylight, Jesus wants you to work. He wants you in the midst of your suffering and your circumstances that you can still bring glory to God if you know who you are where you've been, and where you've headed. And so who are you? Because the Bible would tell you that you're a chosen child of God. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of where you've been, regardless of how you have been raised, you have been blind, you were born blind, unable to help yourself, unable to fix yourself, but Jesus called you out of that blindness into his light, that he's redeemed you and he's restored you, he's got a plan for you, that's where you've been. And he's got a future hope for you. He's got plans, a hope, and a future. That's who you are. And so today, if you feel like you're in a season that's just hard, things are just rough, here's some ways that you and I can glorify God in our suffering. Because there will be seasons, no matter where you're at, where you go through really hard times, and you'll go, God, why is this happening to me? So number one, if it's a result of sin, you can repent of that sin. Whether it's yours or whether it's been done to you, you can choose, hey, God, I'm not gonna make those decisions anymore. If it's personal stuff, if it's drunkenness, if it's the lies I tell, if it's the dishonesty in me, if it's the conceitedness, if it's the unforgiveness, if it's the addiction, God, I'm gonna give that to you. Jesus, I'm gonna trust you with it. Can you take it from me? Jesus, can you, just like you healed the blind man, something miraculous, something that I can't explain, can you take these issues from me? Jesus, I'm gonna turn away from them. I'm gonna trust you with them. So it could be personal stuff, it could be the generational stuff. God, this is the only way I've seen to treat my kids and to raise my kids and to treat my spouse and do work and to deal with people. Jesus, can you take it from me? Can you help me to see people the way you see people? Can you cause me to be more forgiving? Can you help me to forgive that grudge? So in our suffering, we can turn from the things that are causing it and say, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna give that to you. I don't want it anymore. I trust you with it. Free me from this thing. The second way, maybe it's not because of sin, But whatever the reason or circumstance that you're in a season of suffering, you can use it as a testimony to other believers. Because other believers will be watching what you're going through in this hard time, in this hard place, and they'll remember it when they go through their own seasons of suffering. And they'll say, man, I remember how Peter dealt with that guy. I remember how James was was, was in this really hard spot with his kids. And I remember how he came out. I'm gonna choose to run to God and not run from God in this really hard season that I'm in because maybe it's gonna encourage other believers down the way. They're gonna see how I came out and go, I wanna be just like him. I wanna draw near to God, not run from God when I'm in this really hard spot that I'm in. And finally, it's a witness to unbelievers that your coworker, your kids, your spouse, your boss, the people around you, they are watching. And when you go through seasons that are really difficult, really hard, really dark, if you don't live a life that's compelling, that's miraculous, like Jesus healing the blind man, that's a day-to-night difference from how everyone else is dealing with their pains and their issues, then they're not gonna want your Jesus. But if you're in a season of suffering and they see you full of hope because you know I'm God's chosen people, 
And you know I've been through really hard stuff and God's pulled me out. And I know that God's got a future hope where there is gonna be no more pain, no more heartache, no more hurting. I can get through today. My suffering has produced endurance. My endurance has produced character. My character is producing hope. Then the people around you, when they go through their seasons, they're gonna go, hey, will you tell me about this Jesus who healed you? Will you tell me about this Jesus who helped you? Because I need that. Just like the blind man, at the end of the story, what happens is Jesus rubs mud on his eyes and he gets up and he goes to a pool and washes and he sees. That blind man's life was he was obedient to Jesus in faith until he could see Jesus. The Christian walk is the same. That we obey Jesus in faith until we see Jesus and we see all that he was doing. We see how all the suffering, all the issues worked out and we see that really God was working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's why we take communion every Sunday, to remind ourselves that it's not the good works that I've done, it's not the deeds I've done, it's no act of karma that heals me, that saves me, that brings me to Jesus, that karma doesn't work. Communion points us to kingdom, that there's nothing I could have done, no act of sincerity, no work that could ever save me, heal me, bring me out of darkness and into light, that Jesus, that God, the creator God, had to give his own life so that I could be redeemed. That's the weight of my sin. How could I ever be judgmental to someone else? And so Jesus, as we take communion today, I pray, Lord, that if there is in us a self-righteousness, a conceitedness, an inability to love people because of our lack of compassion and empathy, Lord, I pray you would break it. I pray you'd set us free of it because we are reminded all the good that we have is because our God has been so good to us. No work of our own. Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for us, that you so saw us in need and in our sin and in our brokenness that you would give of your own body so that we can be redeemed, we can be healed, we can be set free. Let's take the bread together today. And Jesus, I'm so thankful that you do not weigh me compared to other people. As we take the cup, we're reminded that there's nothing that we could do to ever earn life, earn eternal life, that you're gonna weigh us comparatively to your own son, Jesus. And as we take the cup, we're reminded that his blood was given for us, that we could be covered in his blood, we could be covered in his righteousness. And when God the Father looks at us, they will see us covered in his son, Jesus, perfect, blameless, holy, pure. Let's take the cup today. So if you're here today and you've been in a really hard season and you just need help, you need hope, you need someone to talk to, there will be pastors, there will be people up here that want to hear your story. They wanna know who you are, where you've been and where you're headed. If you're here this morning and you wanna get baptized, you want all the spiritual world and everyone here present to know that you're on team Jesus, that you're gonna be moving God's kingdom forward actively every day. You can get baptized today. If today you're in a season that's just really good, things are going well, there are people here who are in really hard seasons who need help, who need hope, who need compassion, who need empathy. 
that the disciples were lacking that hopefully we would be able to give through Jesus that's working in us and through us. So guys, will you stand, will you sing one final song?